0: morning, everybody. Can I encourage you to take a seat, uh, reach for a Bible, if there's one in front of you, and turn to page 801, page 801 in our Bibles, Malachi chapter 1, if it's your own Bible. Uh, and as you do that, let me welcome you really warmly. My name's Paul. I'm the minister of the church here. I don't think I've had the chance to meet you all yet, but uh, delighted you're here today. Hope we get to see lots of you over the course of however long it is that you're in St. Andrews. We're going to be working our way. We started last week through the last book in the Old Testament, this little book of Malachi, and uh, we're looking today at chapter 1 and verses 6 to 14. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then I'm going to read God's Word to us. Thank you that you are worthy God deigns to meet with us, even now as we gather, that you are present here by your spirit, that you will speak to us through your word, and that you promise that your word won't return to you empty, but will achieve your good purposes in our lives. And we pray, therefore, that that will happen this morning. We trust you to do your work in us. Give us a greater knowledge and understanding of who you are, and help us to reflect on our own response to you. We pray that you would help us to live a life that is worthy of you, As even, and help us even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to us then from Malachi chapter 1 on page 801 there. I'm going to start at verse 6 down to the end of the chapter. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations." Maybe you want to keep that open in front of you as we try and work through it together. There's also an outline on the back of the notice sheet uh, that maybe have helped you as we go now, and there's also a bunch of things you might want to look up and read in your own time later. But here's a, a question that I hope will begin to get us thinking a little bit as we start. Um, what does your life say about what really matters to you as a person? If an alien came down, looked at your life, looked at mine, and looked at the way that we use our time, our energy, our money, our resources, what would it say, what would would the alien learn about our passions and priorities? For most of us, I suspect that our life shows that we place a, a high value on qualifications and careers, on fun and fitness, on friendships and family, on toys and on holidays. That's where a huge amount of our time and money goes. But what does our life say about what we make of God. Uh, When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment of all was, he said it's this, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And as we've just heard, when Paul was summing up the Christian life, he said, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. So we're being asked to reflect this morning on what our life says about our response to God and the incredible love that he's shown in sending his son to die for people like us. Is our response wholehearted and single-minded and full-blooded in love and worship of God? Do we give him our best? Or do we give him our leftovers? Uh, The reason we're asking the question is that in Malachi's day, God's people were miles from giving God their best, as we've just been reading. Their life in general, their sacrifices in particular, uh, were saying to God, you don't matter to us at all. Worshipping and serving you is just a burden. It's a weariness. It's far too much effort, and we can't be bothered. And in our passage this morning, God tackles them head on. Uh, You'll have seen he speaks first to the priests because it was their job to teach the people, to vet the sacrifices that the people were bringing to the temple. They were meant to be modeling a godly life to the people. But it was the people themselves who were bringing the dodgy sacrifices. And so this oracle speaks to and challenges that whole nation, and I'm sure all of us too. And God's method in dealing with this problem among his own people is first to remind them who he is, and then really to give them both barrels. And we're going to follow that pattern this morning in our two points. First, as we think about our worthy Lord. And the reason we need to stop and give good time to thinking about this is the way that you and I respond to God, uh, good or bad, is always going to be a reflection of who we think he is. So I want to encourage us to think of these four little subpoints here as four reasons, four motivations, if you like, four things that should draw on our hearts, four truths about God that should prompt a worthy response to our worthy Lord. And first, he's a father. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, says God, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. It's a general principle in life. It was the fifth of the 10 Commandments, honor your father and mother, and God is the father of his people. When he uh, rescued them from slavery in Egypt, he called them my firstborn son. He said that they were to serve him, and so back in Deuteronomy, when the people were turning against God, Moses said, do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you, and established you? And God is the, the father of his people today as well, not just in creation, but in salvation. First, he made us, and then even though we didn't deserve it because we turned away from him, he sent Jesus to die for us, to rescue us, to adopt us back into his family. He's our father, the Theologian Jim Packer reckons that this is the greatest privilege of all the privileges that Christians enjoy because of the intimacy of relationship that we are given with God through this blessing. He says, think of it this way, our maker becomes our perfect parent. He is faithful in love and care. If you make a list of everything you would want a parent to be or everything You would want to be as a parent, Has this? Faithful in love and care, generous and thoughtful, interested in all we do, respecting our individuality, skillful in training us, wise in guidance, always available, helping us to find ourselves in maturity, integrity, and uprightness. So we must never think of God as some sort of distant authority figure. He puts his spirit into our hearts so that we can cry, Abba, Father, and know him that way. He is love, and through Christ invites us into this loving relationship with him. And because he's our father, it is right that we should honor God. Psalm 66 says, sing the glory of God's name. And it's this same word, give to him glorious or honoring praise. But in Malachi's day, they didn't care that God was their father. And so he has to ask them, where is my honor? Second motivation, slightly different in flavor. He's also our master. Is there in verse 6 again, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts. Um, That word master can just refer to an earthly master, but it's often translated in our Bibles as Lord and refers to God himself. In our own passage, that happens in verse 12 and in verse 14. And the point here then is if every every servant in the world knows that they're meant to fear and to respect their earthly master, then surely Israel, you know, that you are meant to fear and honor your heavenly Lord. It's not that we're meant to be scared of God as though he's a bully or inconsistent or as though he has anger issues, but we are meant to live in humble and obedient awe of him because he's so big and so pure and so good to us. So when God first told Moses to at- assemble the people at-, at Horeb, he said, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth. And we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. In Isaiah, it's also Zion's treasure. It's her prized possession. And in the Bible, a ripe fear of God will always show itself in obedience God says you fear the Lord your God by keeping all his statutes and his commandments and God had given Israel clear instructions about the sort of sacrifices that they were meant to offer but bottom line they didn't fear God and so they didn't listen to what he'd said God then is both father and master he's to be feared and honored Isaiah said, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. I've put some references on the sheet because all through Malachi, honor, fear of the Lord is a big theme. There are seven references. And if you follow them through, you'll see that sin in Malachi looks like a lack of fear of the Lord. And returning to him in repentance looks like learning to fear him again but here in chapter one no fear of god before his own people's eyes third motivation comes from a name of god that is repeated seven times in these nine verses 21 times in malachi it's a big thing in malachi the lord of hosts that literally the lord of the heavenly armies uh niv translates it the lord almighty it's a title that emphasizes both God's commitment to his people and his infinite power. He's both the covenant Lord and the all-powerful ruler of heaven and earth, one who will crush all rebellion against him. And here the repetition of his name I think is meant to drip feed a question into the minds of his people. Have you forgotten how big and mighty I am? Are you sure you want to be despising my name? Have you forgotten what happens to my enemies? The uh, Final motivation comes from the future. I'm calling it Love of the Nations. I could think of a, you might be able to think of a better title for me. Um, because twice in our passage, we're reminded of the, the global and eternal purposes of God. So first in verse 11, God says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. My name will be great among the nations. It's there again at the end of verse 14. I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So we've got this contrast between the way that God's own people are treating him now, despising his name, no fear, and the way that all of the nations will respond to him one day. Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. We see that promise being fulfilled even now. I was trying to do a rough count as you guys came in. I think we're probably 15, 20 nations represented here this morning. You could travel all over the world and find people in every nation who love and serve the Lord. But it points forward to to the day when Jesus returns. A great multitude that no one can number from every nation, we're told, from all tribes and languages, standing before the throne and crying out, Salvation belongs to our lord but here again it's it's embarrassing for israel it's exposing because god is saying there is a day coming when even the pagan nations will know who i am and worship me properly but you my holy nation my chosen people those that i've loved and rescued are treating me like dirt This then is who God is, sobering, isn't it, to reflect on his greatness. The Lord who is worthy to receive, wholehearted, single-minded, full-blooded worship 100% of the time. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, our Master, our Father. So what does my life say right now? Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said that the absence of praise... Reveals a religion that is more of a theory than a love affair. And I wonder if we could say the same about the absence of true worship. Wouldn't it be terrible? If the the worship of people like us, some of the I guess we must be some of the, the best taught believers in world Christianity. If our religion, our worship, was more of a theory than a love affair. Let's move on then to think about our unworthy worship, and we'll think about Israel's actions and then their attitude before we draw some big implications together. And the actions of uh, Israel are simple enough. In verse six, God calls it despising my name. God's name is who he is. Third commandment forbids taking God's name in vain. Here the priests are doing that. The word literally means they're treating God as as worthless, insignificant, vain, and nothing. They deny it, of course. We'll see that lots. They denied God's love in verse 2. They deny whatever God says through Malachi. How have we despised your name, they ask. And God explains, by offering food polluted upon my altar. You say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, God asks, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And again, just on to verse 12, you'll see it again. You profane my name. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted, its fruit, that is, its food may be despised, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snorted it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence, or is lame or sick. This you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? says the Lord? So the job of the priest was to maintain the holiness of God's sanctuary. Here we're being told they pollute it. They're meant to check the offerings that the people are bringing are up to scratch. And God had said, um, you may know this, that a sacrifice was meant to be without blemish or defect. It was not blind or lame or sick or stolen. But here the priests are willing to offer any old scabby thing to God. Uh, I call them roadkill sacrifices, because you know, it's like you go out driving at night, maybe you come across some poor animal, you don't see it until after you've hit it, you might get out of the car, it's just turned into some sort of pancake, sometimes it's so deformed you're not even sure what it used to be, there it is on the side of the road, and Israel, who cares what God wants, we'll just give him that, because that's all he deserves, And verse 14 suggests that there was a deep hypocrisy in play as well. Uh, They made big vows to to God. Lord, if you just get me through my exams, if you just make my mum better, if you give us a good harvest, I'm going to give you the very best lamb in my flock. And God answers, and then he still just gets the roadkill. So in verse 8, God says, can you imagine you had your local Persian governor coming to dinner? Or let's say you had your boss or someone... Know, the person who's in charge of your future coming around to see you, would you treat him or her like that? Or would you get out the best china you can find and make sure there are no kind of bits of food left smeared across it? And would you do your very best for them? Well, if you wouldn't treat a pagan governor like this, why, Israel, would you do it to your heavenly father? to your master, to the Lord of hosts, the love of the nations. That's the action, but I think we've got to drill into the attitude that stands behind it. It's there in verse 13. The priests, the people alike, just thought, what a weariness it is to have to worship God. And they snorted contemptuously at the thought of having to worship God properly. I wonder if you've ever felt something like that even if you've not said it out loud. What a burden it is. How tiresome to have to come to church or to read my Bible and pray or to have to put sin to death or to love all of God's people what a burden it is to give time and money to serving at church when there are other things I could be doing and buying. That mindset was daily life in Israel. From the least of them to the greatest, there was just a, a general acceptance that God was a bit too much effort to be bothered with. A bit like Kevin and Perry going, mm, it's just all too much All too hard. If you don't get that cultural reference, um, YouTube will be your friend. Uh, The choice of word is telling, though. That word weariness or burden in verse 13 uh, is used in Nehemiah actually to refer to the pain of the exile. And that is how awful serving God is, said Israel. It's like suffering in exile. God's answer to their attitude and action comes in three stages. It's pretty staggering. In verse 9, he asks, When you treat me with such honour, dishonor, are you really expecting me to show you favor when you pray? So you do all of this, and then you, you just say your prayers anyway and think I'm going to listen. Do you really think I'm going to listen? In verse 13, he says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. God's plan has always been to bless his people. So he cursed Satan after the fall. He curses those who curse his people. Now he curses that same, pronounces that same curse on his own nation, who are bringing him half-hearted, split-minded, tepid worship. They've rejected the Lord of the Covenant, so they are inviting upon themselves the curse of the Covenant. Verse 10 is the worst bit, though. Can you imagine God saying, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, I will not accept an offering from your hand. That is, your worship is so nauseating to me, says God, that it would be better that you didn't come to church at all. Just lock the doors, board up the windows, turn the church into a carpet shop, because I would prefer you to give up altogether than to offer me that roadkill. Can you imagine God getting to a point where he would say that about his own temple? This is the epicenter of his work on earth. But he says, you kindle a fire in vain. It's pointless. I have no pleasure in you. You The Christian longs to be greeted by God on the last day with the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is the opposite. I have no pleasure in you. And friends, that is the depth of the problem that there was in Israel. The the sacrificial system was an expression of God's love. It was God reminding his people of his desire to forgive. His intention to persevere with his people despite their failings. By offering sacrifices, they were trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And rather than engaging with it, they were throwing it back in God's face. What of us? What does our life say? How are we meant to apply these truths to our situation today? Now, we always want to, be, to take care when we apply God's word. Um, I want to suggest we need to be doubly careful when we're applying the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. And especially when we're applying bits like this that are pronouncing God's judgment on his own people. Because we are not in exactly the same place as them, as I hope we'll see. So I'm going to suggest two main lines of application for now. And then I'll add another one uh, next week when we look at the start of chapter 2. Here's a first main line of application for this kind of biblical material and this passage in particular. It's this, praise God for a better priest and sacrifice. So we know, I hope, that the whole of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. It's not a story about a different God who is mean and nasty, and then he became good in Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament is there to point us forward to Jesus. So there are lots of kings in the Old Testament, but they all point forward to the ultimate king, Jesus. Lots of prophets but they always point forward to the ultimate the final prophet and the final word of God Jesus and then too there are loads of priests in the Old Testament loads of sacrifices and they're all pointing forward throwing the spotlight on helping us to understand more about the great high priest and the ultimate sacrifice Jesus Christ on the cross and we need to bear that perspective in mind with this text because it's impossible to read Malachi I think And I hope this has been your experience this morning without being convicted of your sin. If you are anything like me, and if not, I would suggest that in this respect at least you are deluded. Our worship of God is half-hearted far too much of the time. Uh, Come and pick me apart on that one afterwards if you think yours isn't. But I find that my loyalty and love are split between God and the world too much of the time. There are definitely times in my life when an opportunity to serve God presents itself. And I know that there is something that I could or I should be doing to express my love for God and for his people. And my heart response is the same as verse 13. What a weariness this is. Do I really have to? Our spiritual condition may not be as bad as the people of Malachi's day. I hope it's not. I hope that's not our settled position without repentance. But there is definitely overlap between the two. And there is more than I at least would like there to be. This is too close to home for me. Uh, That is why we need to read verses like this in the light of the coming of Jesus. Because left to myself, there is no doubt that I deserve to bear the curse of verse 14 for my failed worship of God. But listen in that context to one of the most encouraging verses in the New Testament from Galatians 3, I've put it on the sheet. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is the great swap that happened on the cross. Jesus took the curse that I deserve so that I might inherit the blessing that he deserves. He took the curse that I deserve so that I might inherit the blessing that he deserves. The priests of Malachi's day were awful. They despised God's name, they polluted him, but Jesus is the perfect high priest that we need to mediate between us and God. He always honored God. He was holy and blameless and pure all of his days. Or the sacrifices of Malachi's day, blind, stolen, lame, sick, unacceptable to God. But Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God, without any blemish or defect, who died to take away the sins of the world, a sacrifice that delighted God so much that there is now no condemnation at all for anyone, however great our failings, who is in Christ Jesus. So though our hearts and our inclinations may not be much better than the people of Israel, if we've trusted in Jesus, then our spiritual status definitely is. And so the first thing that we should do when we read about their sin is to praise God for Jesus. Because he is our better priest, our better sacrifice. And in him, God sees us despite all of our failings as perfect and acceptable and pleasing to him. So we praise God for Jesus. But of course, that is no license to go on sinning. Second big takeaway this morning, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. Uh, Hebrews 12 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We don't often think of him in that way, but. God is still our father and master, he's still the Lord of hosts, he's still the love of the nations, he is a consuming fire, and he still tells us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to worship him in spirit and truth. And that is not something that I can do in the space of one hour on a Sunday, by pitching up and half engaging with his word. That is something that is an all day, everyday thing. Because Christian worship, true Christian worship, is about the whole of my life. I quoted from Roman Scott Reddit I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the, in the light of the mercies of God that are poured out on us in Jesus, to present your whole bodies as a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're not priests in exactly the same way as the priests in Malachi's day, but the the New Testament regularly uses this language of worship and sacrifice to describe the way that every Christian is meant to respond to God with all of our life. Um, our godliness, our telling others about Jesus, our giving they're all spoken of explicitly in priestly and sacrificial kind of language I need to reflect therefore as God looks down at my life from heaven what does he make of what he sees in my life here's the thing to reflect on, are there ways in which you or I are guilty of or are in danger of offering God Second best, roadkill sacrifices. Rather than presenting my whole body to him, are there bits of my life that I'm wanting to hold back from him? Rooms of my life, my social life, my relationships, my finances, just he's not going to be allowed to touch them. Or am I trying to compartmentalize him into just a, a few hours of the week? I'll give him my best then, but the rest of the week is mine. It would be good to think afterwards if there are ways in which we are offering God roadkill worship. He's not about to curse me if I am trusting in Jesus. There really is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But he is watching. And there is nothing in the New Testament that says that Christians should settle for giving God half of our leftovers we all muck up and none of us will ever be perfect in this life but I, I shouldn't allow it to become my habit my settled life pattern to give him the leftovers so we praise God for Jesus this morning I hope you'll want to do that with your whole heart as we sing in a moment in response to what God has said But let's remember, too, who he is, a great king, Lord of hosts. His name will be feared among the nations. And so let's resolve to offer to God, to talk about what it will look like for us to offer him acceptable worship. Because in Christ, despite all of our failings, our worship, when we sing, when we live, is acceptable in his sight. He delights in it, despite our failing. He has pleasure in us as we trust in Christ and walk in his ways. Let's pray together. Our dear Father, it is um, humbling and challenging and exposing for us to reflect on this passage of your word this morning, for it highlights the ways in which our response to you is so much less than it could be and so much less than it should be. We all too easily forget that you're our Father and our Master, the Lord of Hosts, the great King, the one whom the nations will one day fear and honor. And so we do offer to you second best, leftovers, roadkill, and we say that we're sorry, we confess our sin, and we praise you that the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest the perfect who offered himself as the perfect and once and for all time sacrifice on the cross to bring us to you has done everything to remove the curse from us that we deserve and to pour out your blessing upon us we praise you for him and we ask that you would help us to love him and esteem him as we should and to offer our whole bodies As a living sacrifice to you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, it is right for us to sing in response to God and His Word. If there are things